So we're all fresh off of Thanksgiving. And fighting has become a staple, not only of a lot of Thanksgiving meals, if we're honest, uh, but also the Black Friday experience. Although 2016 looked dull in comparison to the exploits of years gone by, measured by the footage of fights that was uploaded to social media or lack thereof, and the associated hashtags that did not trend this Black Friday. The evidence remains. A young man, recently first-time father, star athlete, Damon Carter, only 21 years young, shot and killed outside of a Macy's in Atlantic City. Then in Reno, Nevada, another young man, only 33, uh, once again shot and killed following a road rage incident associated with a parking spot right outside of a Walmart. Every year, just hours after gathering with our friends and our family, counting our blessings and giving thanks, arguably for the only few fleeting moments of the year, men and women rush to retailers and get into physical altercations, some resulting in cold-blooded murder to save a few dollars on desired merchandise. If nothing else, this reiterates our cultural position that we're confronted with time and again, that somehow possessions are more valuable than people, that somehow money matters more than human beings. What we'll discover this morning as we uh, turn to the scriptures is that no matter how loud the voice of our culture is, no matter how inundated with information we become, no matter how high and wide the wave of inertia rises, the fact remains for the church, for every man or woman who believes in the Lord Jesus, or as I read on uh, our first Christmas card of the year, For everyone who believes that Jesus is king, we are to remember that there is something worth fighting for, but it's not found on any shelf, and it's not uh, included with a barcode, and it's not adorned with a price tag, and it was never intended to belong to only a few willing people who would fight for it. If you will, turn with me in your Bible or in the City Church app to the letter of Jude, which is second to last in the New Testament right before Revelation. Uh, Today's sermon will conclude my series, Something Worth Fighting For, in which we've studied through the entirety of the book of Jude. For those of you who are new uh, or joining us for the first time online, um, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us this morning. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. This morning, as we work our way through the final verses in the book of Jude, or Jude's letter, I'll draw your attention to three actions and one affirmation. Again, three actions and one affirmation. These four headings are not exhaustive. Uh, They don't completely capture all that's held in these verses, but they were helpful to me in organizing my thoughts, and I hope they're helpful for you as well. And if they're not, uh, then just don't worry about them and follow along. The three actions are remember, reinforce, and remain. And then the final affirmation that we'll look at is a reminder. First, we'll look at uh, our our very first action that Jude calls our attention to, uh, which is under the heading, remember. 
a pair of quotes to sort of get the uh, wheels of our mind going. First from a 65-year-old Scottish preacher, and second from a 34-year-old Kenyan-born Canadian rapper. Alistair Begg, speaking on the primary role of a pastor, said, The responsibility is not telling people things that they've never known, but things that they must never forget. Shad, uh, a.k.a. Shad K., wrote a song entitled, Remember to Remember. It's phenomenal, and you should all listen to it after you listen to my sermon. Here are a few lines from that song. He said, I woke up in the morning and I started talking to Pops. He said, there's lots that you've learned, but a lot you've forgot. More often than not, you don't got to be taught, just remember to remember how you got to this spot. So, my primary role is to remind you of things that you must never forget. Your primary role this morning, in the words of Shad, is to remember to remember. We'll start here at verse 17, and again, we'll be going through the final verses of Jude's letter. Verse 17. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. These first few verses are under the heading of remember. And as I'll draw your attention to, uh, it's because there are many things that we must remember as Christians. Arguably, uh, the most important thing that we should remember, that we should carry in our pocket with us as we come and as we go, is that we are beloved. And you might take a minute to write that word down, that we are beloved, which is the real meaning of the word behind what's been translated here in verse 17 as, quote, dear friends. The Greek word is agapetos, agapetos, again, meaning beloved or the object of love. I want to draw your attention to where we first find this word, agapetos, how it's used, and to whom it's applied. Three illustrations, all from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 3, Matthew 12, and Matthew 17. In Matthew 3, Jesus makes his way to his cousin, uh, John the baptizer, And in the very moments after he's baptized, the heavens are torn open. You guys might remember this scene. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and audibly a voice comes from the heavens. And here's what that voice says. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Beloved. Matthew 12, Jesus finds himself in a setting uh, culturally similar to this in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath. He is uh, challenged by the presiding Pharisees, the religious rulers of that context, when a man with a shriveled hand comes before them. Now the Pharisees hold tightly to the interpretation that on the Sabbath there is no work to be done. I'm talking about none, nan, 
nada, not even the work that's helpful and healing, life-giving and restorative, redemptive. None of that work, which is the very work that Jesus performs in front of the Pharisees when he heals this man's shriveled hand, when he heals the crippled man. Matthew 12 goes on to tell us that the Pharisees, check this out, in response to that restorative, redemptive, life-giving miracle, go out and they plan and plot how to kill Jesus. Intelligently, Jesus withdraws from the city. (laughs) He hears about that. He finds out about that and he's like, all right, I'm getting out of here. But a large crowd follows him who he continues to heal and he warns them not to tell others about him. This was prophesied, or as I talked about last week, it was foretold in Isaiah 42 and fulfilled again where we are in Matthew 12, which reads, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, there it is again, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Don't tell anyone about me, said Jesus. No one will hear his voice in the streets. But there it is again. There at verse 18, my beloved. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John as he ascends uh, a mountain. In a miraculous series of events, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. He's somehow changed into a different form. His face shines like the sun. His clothing shines like the stars. Then Moses and Elijah appear. The apostles are enveloped in a cloud, like the cloud that went before Israel and was behind Israel as God led them out of Egypt. And a voice again speaks from the cloud. And here's what that voice says. This, speaking of Jesus, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That's the King James translation. But there again, we see beloved. Now, I want you to notice something, that all three uses of that Greek word are, in fact, declarations. They're statements. They're declaratives. God the Father is declaring that Jesus the Son is his beloved or is the object of his love and his affection. And that very word Rather, that declaration, beloved, is used by Jude here in verse 17. Here's why that matters. We, the believers in Jesus, the local church, are the beloved of God. We are the object of God's affection. And as we find in the translation here, Jude considers fellow believers as, quote, dear friends. And in passing, it's worth uh, noting that that should be the norm amongst Christians, that we should relate to one another within the framework of that beloved declaration as dear friends of and towards one another, not necessarily because we like each other, although I'm sure all you guys like one another. Not necessarily because we're naturally endeared to one another. Not necessarily because we agree with each other. But because in our belief in the Lord Jesus, we like Abraham have been made the friends of God. 
In week one, I talked about Jude being James' brother and that Jude and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. When James wrote his letter, uh, cleverly entitled James, in verse 2, he said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Our first action is to remember that we are the objects of God's love, that we are the beloved, and we are to relate to one another accordingly. Verse 17, as we continue to remember, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires, which we've looked at in detail over the past two weeks. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. I wonder if you see that stark contrast The ungodly, those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, who do not have the assurance of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and who follow their natural instincts, they divide believers. They divide the church. Whereas the beloved, the believers, the objects of God's love, we are to be united as dear friends, not only of God, but of one another as well. Oftentimes the you know strategy about oh how do we how do we be an effective church? What do we do? How do we witness? How do we evangelize? Do you know the power of friendship amongst people who you don't necessarily naturally like? Do you know the power and the witness of Uh, love for people who you don't share the same zip code with or tax bracket, drive the same kind of car, go the same place. A long time ago, when I was a young Christian, I heard nothing unites like the gospel. In the framework of who Christ is and what he's done, we are all the same. That is the powerful and miraculous witness of the local church, that we would love one another as friends of God and as friends of one another. Remember is our first action, and our second is reinforce. Reinforce. This action is in response to the onslaught of the ungodly who cause division. I'll read uh, verse 20, and I'll put it up here on the screen as well, and this is from the message translation. But you, dear friends, carefully build yourselves up in this most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. Build yourselves up, not tear others down. Build yourselves up, not criticize what others are building. Build yourselves up, not malign others who you're threatened by the progress of their building. Build yourselves up, don't tear one another down. As I considered this, uh, several scenes from Walking Dead Season 6 came to mind. And look, I don't know what you think about when you're reading the Bible, but this week, that's what I thought of. Walking Dead Season 6. Inside of, and this is not like a spoiler alert. Uh, 
I hope it's not. Okay, so inside the walls of Alexandria, if you guys who have watched season six know what I'm talking about, the community is concerned about the potential of a bell tower crashing in on the wall that protects them from the zombies. And I don't know why they don't call them zombies. Do you notice that? They call them walkers. They call them the dead. They never just call them zombies. They're zombies. I don't know why they don't call them that. Anyway, so they're concerned about the bell tower crashing in on the wall that protects them from the walkers. And their concern leads them to reinforce the wall, to build it up, not to abandon their community, not to ignore the impending threat, not to get a larger insurance policy so when it happens they can cash out. They reinforce the wall. They build it up. A lot of bodies working, a lot of hours exerting, a lot of energy reinforcing, building up They find wood and metal. They create poles and rods to strengthen the wall at the very point where the bell tower may collapse, reinforce, build up. They didn't build a new wall. In fact, they didn't build the wall in the first place. They reinforce what they've inherited, what they've received as a gift. Likewise, the Christian is to reinforce what he or she has received as a gift, namely the most holy faith. And again, in the past couple of weeks, I've clarified that holy means set apart. The faith, the complete revelation of God that's found its fulfillment and personification in the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, carefully build yourselves up in this, this set apart faith. Some of you uh, very well may be asking, uh, sure, but how do you do that? It sounds good and all, but how am I supposed to put that into action? And I'm sure others of you are thinking, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to go out this week and I'm going to build myself up in the faith. I'm going to wake up extra early and have an extra long quiet time. I'm going to make sure that I don't cuss and that I don't drink and that I don't lose my temper and that I invite my friends to the 915 service at City Church beginning on January 8th. For those of you thinking along those lines, you're completely wrong. That's not how you build yourselves up in the faith. Other than inviting people to church at City, uh, 9.15 and 11 a.m., beginning January 8th. Jude tells us how to build ourselves up. Pray. Wah, wah, wah. Carefully build yourselves up in this most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. A quick word about, quote, praying in the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's just a lot. There's like tons of very unhelpful commentary and teaching about an interpretation of this praying in the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues. I safely assume that to arrive at that conclusion here at verse 20, that this is somehow about speaking in tongues, you'd have to bring that conclusion with you to the text to find it here. Simply, the Christian who prays, prays in the Holy Spirit. A few helpful clarifications about the confusion so often surrounding the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples that it's better that he goes away so that he can send the Holy Spirit who he refers to as 
the helper. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper of those who believe in him. What a simple, beautiful, endearing way to think about the Holy Spirit. He says the helper will teach the believer everything and remind him or her of everything that Jesus has said. To the Ephesians, Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. To the Corinthians, Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is a seal upon us and a deposit in our hearts, again, guaranteeing what is to come. There's a lot of uh, sensationalizing of this phrase, pray in the Holy Spirit. Simply, again, the Christian who prays, prays in the Holy Spirit. The Christian is to carefully build him or herself up in the most holy faith by praying. The first action is to remember. The second action is to reinforce or build up. And the third action is to remain. Remain. Again, we'll see this here at verse 21, which we'll put up on the screen. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. And I want to focus on that phrase, keep yourselves. The word translated keep also means to carefully attend to. Or in other words, attend carefully to yourself. Y'all don't get me started now. A whole sermon series could be built on that idea of attending carefully to yourself. You know how the adage goes. If you were more worried about yourself, you wouldn't have time to be worried about other people. Worried about other people. Enter Facebook. Enter Instagram. Enter Twitter. Enter OK Magazine. Star Magazine. In Touch. US Weekly. TMZ. Bossip. The Breakfast Club. The vast majority of what passes for the evening news. Worry about other people. What a world we would live in if we weren't worried about other people. But like I said, don't get me started. Keep yourselves. Remain. Remain. Why? Here's the bottom line. Because no one is responsible for keeping you in God's love. That's not anyone else's responsibility. Dare I say, I'm not responsible. And the church, as it exists in any terms that allows or enables your irresponsibility, is not responsible for keeping you in God's love. You are responsible for yourself, for keeping yourself, for carefully attending to yourself. In passing, God is no less sovereign because of our free will than your free will is limited because of God's sovereignty. I'm going to say that one more time. God is no less sovereign because of your free will than your free will is limited because of God's sovereignty. What that means is that even though God is sovereign, that he's in control of the universe, that he has a plan that he's concerned for and that he's attending to, that the king's heart is like a stream of water in his hands and that a bird doesn't fall to the ground apart from his will, somehow, in a way that's way beyond my pay grade to explain, so ask Jeff when he gets back, somehow, each of us is fully responsible for each choice, each decision, and each word of ours. So in light of that, 
remain. Keep yourself. And what an encouragement that we are to keep ourselves in God's love. There are some of you who are fighting tooth and nail, doing everything you can in an attempt just to keep yourself in God's good graces or out of God's wrath. I hear it in counseling, and I hear it in culture, I hear it in the church, and I hear it in comedy skits. Men and women living with the conscious fear of the wrath of God, the punishment of God in there, wagering their bets, weighing their good against their bad in an attempt to appease this notion that this God in their mind dominates their thoughts, that somehow he dictates their circumstances, especially when things aren't going their way, when things aren't going well, they say to themselves, why does God oppose me? Why does God do this to me? Why is God mad at me? My experience is making me lose faith, they say, and God has to show me some sort of sign. If that's you this morning, I want you to see uh, loud and clear, as it were, here in the text, that Jude's clarification is very helpful to your conscience, uh, that you need not be burdened with keeping yourself in God's good graces or out of God's punishment, away from the wrath of God. You can do no such thing. That's not your work. Believe in Christ. He's paid your debt and keep yourself. Remain in God's love. God's love, there's no better, more bountiful, healthier, happier, life-giving place to keep ourselves now is there other than the love of God. And as if it weren't inherently beautiful uh, and beneficial enough by itself, were to do so as we wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus, which will usher us into eternal life. How wonderful that I am to remain in the love of God in anticipation of the mercy of Jesus, which will reach its fulfillment as it ushers me into the eternal life that he's secured for me and secured for you and for anyone who believes. Remain, but that's not it, which is helpful to our status update addicted culture. 500 million tweets are sent a day. We're addicted to our phones, checking them. And for some of you, if you had to remain in the waiting room of God's love, as it were, uh, you would lose your mind. So here are some action steps for you, even as I see you looking at your smartphones right now. Come back to me. We're to remain, but this is what we're to do as we remain. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupt flesh. It's not hard to see the parallel here between the Christ and the Christian. The conduct of Jesus is supposed to be represented in the conduct of the Christian. As we await the mercy of the Lord, we are to be merciful to others. Merciful specifically to those who doubt. If you doubt this morning, I want you to hear that it's natural to doubt. It's normal to doubt. It's human to doubt. And often it's very healthy to doubt the things that you're taught, the things that you think you believe and that you hold closely to. Have you ever doubted? And in the time of your doubt, have you had someone mercifully walk with you, with you into your doubt and help you through your doubt. If so, you know the mercy and the power of that in your own life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear. Mercy mixed 
with fear really is a peculiar cocktail, isn't it? Think about it. Fear motivating mercy, the fear of God, respect or admiration, a realize, a realization that had it not been for the very mercy of God himself shown to me in Jesus Christ and in the mercy of those who were willing to walk with me, I would have been destined for the fire myself. The mercy of God, the mercy of believers. This humbles me. This humbles a man or a woman. It doesn't inflate the ego. It doesn't add to our sense of self or our capability. Out of this posture, we can and we should be merciful to others. One last comparison before we move on. In verse 4, in the beginning of the series, uh, I talked about the ungodly and that their conduct is to pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality or sin. Whereas the godly are to hate even the clothing stained by the flesh, which was born in the likeness of Adam, born into sin. But get this, this is not the hate of self-righteousness that looks past the plank in your own eye to look at the speck in someone else's eye. This is not the hatred of sin that lines the streets of funerals and weddings and parades holding white signs with large black font. I think you've seen them displaying declarative statements about what God hates and who God hates. That's not what I'm talking about. This is the hatred of sin, my own sin, that drove the lover of my soul to his death, that nailed the God-man to the tree where he died in my place. This is the hate of sin that crucified my Christ, that slaughtered my Savior, And that's the display of God's love to me and to the world, to the non-believer, to the believer, and to everyone dealing with doubt. The love of God, remain there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Be merciful to others. Save them from the fire. Hate sin. Remember, reinforce. Our third action is remain. And now for our final affirmation. This is a Reminder, And some of you may be thinking that remember and reminder uh, are the same thing. I got a little phonics lesson this week as I looked into those words. When you remember something, uh, it happens spontaneously like this. I'm driving home, and I remember that I forgot to go to the grocery store before I went home because my wife asked me to. Or if you're nearing the end of your sermon and you just happen to remember that people are expecting to leave at a certain time, it's unprompted. I just stumble upon it myself. Whereas a reminder is brought on by something or someone else. So X reminds you of Y. For instance, if they were back at the tech booth, standing up, pointing at their watch, they would be reminding me, hey bro, wrap it up, right? X prompts Y. So, as we look to these final verses, what is Jude reminding us? What is he showing us? What is he drawing our attention to? That we wouldn't necessarily just remember ourselves. And we'll see it here in these concluding verses at verse 24 and 25. Jude says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God and Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Jude reminds us who God is and what is available to anyone who believes 
securely theirs in Christ our Lord, to whom he will present us to God without fault and with great joy. Jesus is given great joy when he presents someone who believes in him to God the Father. Jesus, to whom glory, majesty, power, and authority belong before time, in time, and into all of eternity. What else serves as a reminder of these truths? A reminder. The cross and the church. As we look to the cross of Christ, we're reminded that Christ has secured us. We gather with the body of Christ, with the fellowship of believers, only a portion of those who have believed. And we're reminded that Christ has not only secured us, but he's secured others from every nation and tribe, people, and language. As we gather as the church, we remember and we remind ourselves of these ultimate realities. We remember these things. We reinforce the firm foundation that is beneath us in Christ's completed work. We remain in the love of God and we remind one another that soon Jesus will present us to God faultless and with great joy. Again, for our good and for his glory. And all of this is the very something that the local church should find worth fighting for. If you will, uh, stand with me. And I want to read these last verses together. Uh, Then the band will lead us in one final song and I'll hop back up here to dismiss us. It's a doxology that's been uh, read, said, memorized, and clung to for thousands of years. Again, verse 24 and 25, let's read them aloud together uh, and find great peace and joy in them. Verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Pray with me. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for your declaration to us uh, that we are beloved, that we are the object of your affection. And when we doubt that, we need to remember and we need to be reminded to look to the cross, that in Christ you have completed a work that is not ours to touch, that is not ours to add to, that is ours to find rest in, peace in, hope in, joy in, pleasure in, and that we would remember that in the gathering of the local fellowship and the gathering of the fellow believers who we are seeking to treat as dear friends, co-beloved folks that are the objects of God's love, that that is a witness to this troubled, troubled world that we live in. God, we are looking for peace. We are looking for a ruler and a king to bring uh, clarity and order to our land. And we fall short when we look anywhere other than the person of Jesus and his work. God, we thank you for the local church, for our part in it. Uh, We thank you that you have established the local church for our good and for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.